0: immense experience in this area, Kate Lappin, who's Regional Coordinator of the Asia Pacific Forum on Women, Law and Development. That's a network of over 200 women's rights organizations in 26 countries in our region. And Kate has spent 20 years working in this area promoting human rights, including for Amnesty International and a State Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission. And has been active in feminist refugee rights and trade union movements, She was actually once an organizer, I hear, in the ABC and spent uh, almost a year of her life on the picket lines of the ABC. So I probably was turned away from the ABC by Kate at some point uh, during one of our many industrial actions. But seriously, um, Kate has enormous authority and experience in this area. She is a member of the United Nations Women's Asia-Pacific Civil Society Advisory Committee, and on the executive committee of the Women's Human Rights Defenders International Coalition. She's currently and has been for some years based in Thailand in Chiang Mai. Please welcome, Kate Lappin.
1: Uh, thank you, Norman, and thank you to the New South Wales nurses for inviting me. I'm really extremely pleased to be here. I um, have spoken at many different meetings and events around the world at at the UN and at different conferences, but I've actually never been invited to come back to Australia and speak here, so this is the first time, Um, and I'm really happy to be here, um, particularly given that I'm originally from Melbourne, but I really wouldn't like to go back during winter as soon as I'm (laughs) from living in Thailand, so really happy to be here in the lovely winter days of Sydney. Um, I'm going to be talking to you about the movements in the Asia-Pacific region, feminist movements, that really are organising to strengthen their power, their collective power, to challenge particularly globalisation. I wanted to tell you a little bit about APWLD before I before I really go into some of the information about the region and um, we as norman mentioned we 're a, a network of more than two hundred women 's rights organizations, and we really we call ourselves feminist and I would hope maybe by the end of uh, this today some of you will be um, well i 'm sure many of you already identify as feminist but maybe even more importantly, would recognise how our struggles are bound up together. So I don't want to talk to you about the, the poor situation, particularly of women in the region necessarily. I want to talk about the systems that are driving inequality for women in the region and for us, and that our own struggles are bound up together with those of women throughout the world. And it's not, I'm not talking to you from a position of asking you to think more charitably, but for us to think together about what it is that's, that you're challenging and that women around the region need to challenge. Um, so let me I'd first say that APWLD, our members, have been working for a number of years to think about those systems that are driving inequality and have identified a nexus of three global structures that work with patriarchy to drive inequality, and that is globalization, militarism, and fundamentalisms, and together work with patriarchy to create a system of exploitation that particularly relies on inequality to prosper. And I want you to think about what, if, if part of our work is to challenge patriarchy, what would it be to be the opposite of patriarchy? I'm going to come back to that at the end, but I want you to have a think about, what would you say is the opposite of patriarchy? I'm going to talk to you a bit more today about, particularly about globalization, in that nexus of globalization, fundamentalism, and militarism, and how that's tied up, particularly with patriarchy, to create the global injustice that we currently have. So let me ask you to think about that. I'll just mention that for our perspective, patriarchy is a system that depends on fear and the threat of fear and violence in order to rule. So it's not necessarily a system that sometimes we think it's men benefiting at the expense of women. That is part of it. But patriarchy really means that we are bound to a system of rules that allow some people to rule others um, through a system of fear and threats. OK, so let me th- let's think then about this global moment. Really, what I want you to think about is the moment that we're in and the way that this has occurred, and then at the end, what will we do about it? So first of all, what has, what has the consequences of globalisation been for the region and for the world? Perhaps some of you have already heard that every year there are statistics that come out from using the Credit Suisse wealth data to find out how many people in the world own as much wealth as half the world's population. And this year, every year it gets lower and lower, and this year eight men in the world have as much wealth as half the global population, so that's eight men have as much as um, 3.5 billion people. And um, that system of inequality is growing so that in a couple of years we expect that to be one individual. Also, we, we can see that this is particularly at the, the rise of the wealth of corporations and the power of corporations. So now we have 69 corporations who are part of the largest economies in the world. And 10 corporations together have more wealth than 180 countries, which is extraordinary, given that you know, there are only 200 and just over 200 countries in the world, that 180 of them put together, their wealth is uh, less than 10 corporations alone. And in our region, in the Asia Pacific region, this is particularly stark, where inequality is getting even higher than the rest of the world. So so we now have um, a number of countries, where I live in Thailand is, for example, the third most unequal country in the world. India is the second most unequal country. Those countries have been prospering if you look only at GDP. If we're only measuring the growth that's happened over the last few years, or the last uh, 30 or 40 years, through GDP, you would think that those countries are really prospering because they've had greater growth than the rest of the world. But in fact, it's going to a tiny, tiny minority of people. So 0.001% of the population has more wealth, has 17 times more wealth than the combined wealth of what's called the least developed countries. uh, we can see the enormous disparity, of course, just walking down the street, where you can see something that looks like a skyscraper in Delhi, a 50-storey-high skyscraper next to slums. That is, a, that is one family's residence, um, and below them are you know, millions of people living in poverty. So what does that mean though? Of course, it's offensive. I'm sure we all feel sickened by the idea that the world's growth is going to such a tiny few. But what does that mean then in terms of the way that the, the world is being organised? What are the consequences of having such horrendous wealth? Well, the, if you, this is the result of a successful rise of neoliberalism. It's, it's a clear consequence and a deliberate outcome of implementing neoliberal economic systems over the last 40 to 50 years, and that that has become more and more the dominant way of organizing our economies, but also organizing the political and social order. And it's done that through dismantling any barriers there have been to foreign corporations, any barriers to foreign investment across borders, and any barriers that might mean that they're slightly regulated in the way that they accrue wealth, that they exercise power, where their wealth can go, and also putting up barriers. So sometimes we call that deregulation, but actually there's a lot of regulation going on, which is regulation to ensure that those corporations can maintain power and that wealth can never be challenged or returned to the state. And this is key to the, you know, what's been called the neoliberal order that has been increasingly part of the Asia-Pacific growth model to ensure that capital prevails over the interests of a few. And why is that so important to women? Well, firstly, what's very clear is that capital is not held in the hands of women. Capital is very much gendered. Although there's a tiny few people that are benefiting from it, it is clearly even down through the middle class and uh, even towards the the lower middle class where people still have some capital, it is still held almost entirely in the region in the hands of men. And of course, so if we, create a system where capital gives you dem- your power whether that be democratic power personal power or economic power it is going to be deeply sexist and that if, that was really the long history of civilization voting rights were tied up with capital and it's only very a, s- a small period in time where that was delinked and where women started to have some kind of Democratic voice, the right to vote and to participate, which has effectively been taken away when we restore those rights to capital. Um, so, what does what else does has this meant? What's very clear is that it's resulted in one of the greatest crises that we really have facing humanity, which is the climate crisis. Again, the Asia Pacific region is the region that is most challenged by the enormous crisis of climate that we have. In the Asia-Pacific region, we have a n- numerous countries that are classified as most vulnerable. And just imagine that a country like Bangladesh, a country that's struggling to have for workers to even gain the $68 a month, which is the, the wage a garment worker, every garment worker who's paid Um, at the formal rate, not even those in the informal sector, are paid a month, $68. In that country, 50 million people are likely to be displaced by climate change, a country that's already struggling from population and salinity. The climate crisis, I think, is one that is not accidental. It's very much a part of the neoliberal order. Of course, when we organise the global economy through valuing GDP only and consumption is the only way we can imagine that we can increase living standards, that we will end up with both the climate itself changing and our environments. It will require people to be increasingly pushed off their land. Um, land that mainly women are dependent on in terms of producing livelihoods, and it will require the continual move of people into the uh, production chain, and that's exactly what's happened in the Asia-Pacific region. Land grabbing and GDP growth are tied up together, where each country has had to remove its barriers to foreign investment and allow people's land to be purchased by big agro-business, in many cases, by tourist businesses and others. And so this climate crisis, I think, is both devastating for women, more women are pushed off land or lose their livelihood, but also women, more women die in the Asia-Pacific region from a range of reasons, from patriarchal reasons that mean women during crises have to look after children, mean that they're not likely to know how to swim, means that they don't have access to transport, for example. So there's a range of reasons that more women are dying. But also in the after effects, less women get health care less women are able to get food during the crisis, more women are trafficked after a response to climate crisis. Um, But the consequences of this wealth accrual are also about Democracy about whether we have any say in the way that countries are ordered. Of course, in the Asia-Pacific region, many countries already have a democratic gap. I live you know, in a country that has a military dictatorship for the last few years where it's impossible, really, to speak publicly about democracy, and many countries are like that. But even where there is a, pro- a proclaimed democracy, there's been a lack of capacity to change the laws, even if you... End up electing a, a democratic or pro people government. And we've seen research that shows that's looked at a country like the US claiming to be the democratic centre that shows that. Dem- that Decisions that the majority of people support cannot be made if they're opposed by private corporations. A study by MIT found that the US cannot be called a democracy anymore. It's effectively a plutocracy ruled by the rich because every public policy they looked at that had been passed through the Congress over a 20-year period had made no difference the public opinion made no difference on the outcome when corporations were lobbying against it. And that is increasingly the case in the Asia Pacific region, even in those countries that have tried to open up to a more democratic governance. And this makes gov- governments indebted to corporations. If, government, if corporations and a tiny elite few are the ones with the decisions around capital, Countries are actually in debt to those people. It's impossible to govern when they owe those corporations more money than the state actually has in many cases. And this has the consequence of of ensuring the state can no longer invest in public health, in public education, in infrastructure, and that corporations increasingly get a slice of that public pie. Now, why is that such a critical issue for women's rights? Because of course, when a family has very little resources and they need to make decisions about who can go to hospital or who can get an education, they direct that, both because of, their, because of a long-standing history of, of patriarchy, of believing men are more valuable than women, but also because of basic economics, thinking that well, our son is going to be more likely to bring in money and be able to support us if we pay for his education. Our daughter will probably cost us in relation to a dowry. So, you know, we're, our own family um, decision has to be based on survival. So, this is increasingly, whilst, of course, Uh, governments might, especially governments like the Australian government, will profess to have a commitment to gender equality. The economic decisions that are driving the region are making that impossible and driving gender inequality. And if we see this, for example, in in Australia itself, we know that there's been a huge change in the way that workers' salary compared to CEOs' salaries, the ratio between those has has deepened over the last 40 years. So in 1965, for example, the ratio to a CEO's salary to a worker's was 20 times that of an average worker. Now, in Australia, it's 113 times. In the US, it's 345 times. But really, this masks what really happened during that time. Because in 1965, The worker and the CEO were all in one company. We're all employed by the same employer. But uh, neoliberalism has allowed workers to be outsourced, to be out of down the value chain, and particularly to be in Asia, women in Asia. So if we take Walmart as an example. In 1965, Walmart, of course, was producing clothes in the US. Well, it's very similar here. We had a, a manufacturing industry at that time. Now, those workers are employed in Bangladesh or in other places, and the differential between that CEO's salary and the worker's salary is now something like 22,000 times the difference. And so we can see who benefited from that. Of course, you can buy cheaper clothes now, but who profited from that is the CEO, but also the shareholders, and the founders of Walmart. This doesn't even tell us really the biggest differential because it's between the CEO, but the actual owners of those corporations are becoming obscenely wealthy. So Zara, for example, one of the largest clothes manufacturers who manufactures in Bangladesh, The, the owner or the founder of Zara, his own, his own wealth is 82 million times more than a Bangladeshi garment worker can make in a whole year. And she won't even have that wealth. I mean, if you earn $68 a month and you have to support a family, and probably extended family, you don't save anything. You actually go into debt. So this comparison is assuming that she could save her whole annual salary. But of course, that's impossible. And I wanted to briefly show you this way that, in fact, inequality within countries is growing. As I said, Thailand and India. But inequality between countries is growing even more. We assume that globalization has led to greater growth in those countries. But in fact, particularly in the least developed countries, there's a bigger differential now between us in the developed world and developing countries, particularly for the working class. And that happens through a range of neoliberal rules. So whilst we think we're giving aid, although I think we know that Australia gives very little aid now under this government, but we think that aid is compensating for the kind of inequality between countries. Far more money is coming out of the developing countries. We are being developed by the developing world rather than the reverse, and that 's happened through different ways, one of them is a kind of trade misinvoicing or mispricing the way that companies pretend to to have very low costs where they 're manufacturing or where they 're extracting, and they invoice themselves from another company set up in a tax haven and are able to get around. Um, the costs in that country. Avoid paying tax. It happens here as well, of course, because corporations are trying to avoid paying tax here. Um, Developing countries are in debt to, as I said, what was originally to other countries, but now is in fact in debt to corporations and to the wealthiest. And then there are trade rules. I'm going to go in a little bit more about trade um, in a moment that all mean together that About $2 trillion is transferred from developing countries to the developed countries every year. Of course, that doesn't go to general people, that's going to the wealthiest, the people that have their foreign investments um, in developing countries. If you have a look around Asia, you can see many Australian companies, mostly extractive companies, but uh, investing in the region and getting extremely wealthy as a result. So we know that wealth does exist. If you looked back in the 1960s and the promises, for example, at the United Nations about how we would all become prosperous, how we could eradicate poverty, it would have been a very reasonable expectation that that would happen. But in fact, what's happened is that that wealth is increasingly secured and hidden and not used for development. Um, not used to invest in the kind of areas that people need, obviously health, education, infrastructure, energy, food. So we know that at least $30 trillion, an extraordinary amount that we really can't even imagine, um, that amount of wealth existing, is sitting in tax havens, is sitting so that in places where it's not used even in private purposes for productive reasons. It's used in investments that could be in the wealth, in art, in property, but also in bonds, in, in the most obscene kind of products, like catastrophe bonds that we know that now exist, almost betting on whether there'll be a catastrophe in one of the developing countries. And that this is in order to avoid paying tax. It's in order, in order to avoid giving anything back to the countries that where you extracted profit. And a lot of that, 45% of that money is from illicit financial flows. So when you get dictated, dictatorships in the way you can corrupt a country and, and skim off money um, into your own private havens. So it's from Asia. We've had some extraordinary examples of, of uh, dictatorships being able to become obscenely wealthy by using tax havens. Tax havens that, of course, developed country governments have supported. Even New Zealand is effectively a tax haven. Um, and we know, for, for example, in Asia, that that means a tax revenue loss of something like $34 billion. It has a, Asia has a very low tax to GDP ratio, meaning how much of the of the of expending in that country is actually used or taken for in tax and available to the government to spend. So the tax-to-GDP ratio in Asia is only 14.8%. Australia is actually quite low as well. We're constantly told Australia is a high-taxing country, but on a global average it's it's lower, so that's 278 And the OECD, the, the developed country average, is 342 And really, most analysis suggests that if you want to be able to provide the kind of services that you need for people to prosper, you need at least a, about a one-third ratio um, of tax so that you can invest properly, in particularly in areas like health. But instead, the exact opposite is happening. So we feel that this moment, there is, I think, I mean, if, especially if you read the media and you follow what's going on internationally, you feel like people have come to the end of of tolerance with neoliberalism. We've got potentially new leaderships that actually talking about capitalism in, or opposition, not leadership I should say, but opposition in places like the US and the UK, where we know that many people are getting out on the streets and, and saying that, okay, enough is enough, but really the opposite is happening behind the scenes where corporations are able to enforce these rules more and more so through trade agreements. And I don't know, have most of you have probably heard about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, right? Well, there's actually even a bigger trade agreement. I don't know if you've heard of this one, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. Have many of you heard about that trade agreement? No, so this, oh yes, okay, (laughs) thank you, good. so this is the, a trade agreement that covers the Asia-Pacific region, the countries of all of Southeast Asia, China, India, Korea, Japan, and Australia and New Zealand. It's, it will have affect more people than any trade agreement ever proposed. And this trade agreement has been negotiated at the moment. They hope to finish it this year. I'm be in India next week for the next round of negotiations, and it effectively is just like the TPP, it's going to try and cement the rules uh, that have been cemented through other trade agreements, but particularly in countries like India that haven't yet signed that to the extent that we have. And it means that you simply can't go back on neoliberalism. It will be almost impossible if you, if you want to try and make anything public again. It means that rules that we all tried to campaign against in relation to, for example, medicines and intellectual property, will be enforced in a country in India that produces the majority of the world's generic medicines, not just for them and not just for Asia Pacific, but for Africa as well. Most of them come from either India or China. Can you imagine if they sign on to this agreement and we can no longer have that kind of production for the world's poorest? Um, And it means, of course, that countries can be sued if corporations feel that their profits are in any way harmed by any kind of laws. So let me just give a little bit of an an overview of what these kind of lawsuits have done and why a feminist organisation of members in the Asia-Pacific region is campaigning against these. So you would have heard if you've heard about the TPP that there's the clause called the Investor State Dispute Settlement, allowing corporations to sue governments. And of course, Australia's had one of those suits through Philip Morris. Um, suing for the cigarette packaging but there are many, many more, many more. There are, are more than we know about because they're secretive but generally they're developing countries that are sued. I know that this case with Australia has got a lot of attention but generally it's developing countries that get sued and they can't defend they don't have the costs to defend themselves. Uruguay was also sued by Philip Morris and it was going to withdraw. Many countries have already refused to put that package in on because they just can't defend the the kind of money that Philip Morris has. These countries have nowhere near the money that a corporation has. But luckily um, somebody actually gave Uruguay the money to try and fight that. Um, but this If you think, well, how did this happen? How did it happen that we ever agreed for corporations to sue governments? It actually was written by Deutsche Bank, and it was during the period of... um, Decolonization when countries were becoming independent and corporations thought, well, we might lose our profit. You know, we've been able to profit enormously from colonization, and we could maybe it's possible that these countries are going to have governments who come in and say, this was unfair, how are we going to turn it around? So they created what they called the Magna Carta for investors, and it's these rules that allow them to sue governments. The first it was first signed between Pakistan and Germany, and that was allowed because Pakistan was desperate to sort of, um, a new country after it seceded from India, and it was trying to get have allies and, and investment. So really, under pressure to sign, and the first case ever was in Sri Lanka, where a British company had invested in some kind of fishing industry and sued the Sri Lankan government because they said that the war with the Tamil war meant that their fishing industry didn't profit. Now there were, of course, the whole population of Sri Lanka didn't profit from that war. People were murdered and, and of course, the country really stagnated. But only them, only that one foreign investor was entitled to be compensated for a war. And now there have been multiple cases since then. So you might have heard that a French company has been suing Egypt for raising the minimum wage. So if you get governments that come in that say this exploitative system has to be challenged, they can be sued. Many, many uh, cases relate to environmental regulation, whether it be asking uh, companies that have destroyed the environment to to clean up, or whether it be making new law- laws... Sorry, I think I'm losing my... Making new laws against fracking. They can be sued. Um, and Or making any laws around uh, not providing new permits to explore, for example. 24 countries have been sued for new tax laws, trying to increase taxes. And we've seen, for example, in South Africa, where they had uh, tried to pass laws that ensured that black South Africans had a stake in the companies that were operating there, that affirmative action uh, was, was deemed a trade barrier. And for women's rights, of course, that often argue that we need affirmative action, this is a, a huge barrier. You know, there are many cases where energy or water or even health, has been privatised. And when new governments realise that that was a mistake, that people are being denied access to water or energy, they then are sued if they try and reverse that. And what does this mean? I mean, if we look at all of this in terms of what it has meant for women, first of all, there has been an increase in some areas in women's participation, that's for sure, in the labour market. But often, that's seen as a competitive advantage, that women are more like, less likely to join a union, more likely to be compliant, and that's been a, a, an attraction for investors. But what's actually happened over the last few years, as countries move out of uh, low paid work and perhaps become more industrialised, you'll find less women, once they actually are starting to pay higher, um, maybe go into the services industry or, or technology, for example, in India. You'll see in this that in South Asia, there's been a, a reversal, that there is now, the, the gender gap has, has uh, broadened. Similarly, in, in East Asia, in China, Korea, Japan, the gender gap has actually broadened. Uh, rather than than reversed, and this kind of idea of the of the the wage gender gap, of course, doesn't reflect the huge amount of work that women have been doing, and that neoliberalism depends on, because if you have a system where you're no longer or you can't not going not willing to provide public services for things like health or education, then that work, which is work, but not paid for in a wage, falls onto women. So we can see, for example, this is from India, the time use, how much time women are actually working in work that could be, uh, could be paid for. It's possible to have been replaced. Of course, we're not talking about the sort of emotional work or other work, but work that could um, receive a payment or could be outsourced. Well, women are actually doing a lot more work. Very little of that is paid. But and this rela- this could relate to producing food, collecting water, but or caring for family members, caring for extended. But often it's also uh, community obligations. And so there's a huge gap in the actual time that women are working. Um, and what does this mean, particularly for the healthcare industry? Well. One of the ways we can think about responding to this situation is actually looking at if we did have an an investment in public health, it's it's hugely beneficial to women across the region, both because it's an area that could have decent work, and also because of the amount of unpaid work that women are doing in health and care and the broader, broader services. So for example, one study that showed that if you looked at Sweden, the amount of healthcare workers or other uh, childcare workers, elderly care workers and so forth that are uh, currently employed there on a ratio and extrapolated that to the world, if you said that we were going to be committed both to decent health and also to women's uh, equality, we would need another 663 million healthcare workers around the world, the majority of them in Asia. So the challenge is then to say how to make that decent work, how to make sure governments invest in that, and also to look at the potential of redistribution that that allows for in terms of unpaid work. I just quickly now wanted to move to, so how do we get this? There's a lot of things that could obviously be improved. How can we move away from the neoliberal system? There's clear evidence that the majority of people no longer want this system and that know it's unjust, both for them and for other people around the world. So one of the things that we've been talking about over the last year or more within the network is that we... We can no longer try and just lobby. We can't just ask the U.N or governments. We need to do something about the situation. And if we think about what's changed, what changed for Australia, why at one point, why were we a more equal country? We know that it wasn't through the graciousness of people that, who had power at the time or who had money. It was through a struggle. And it wasn't. And, Often, it's not only a struggle for an individual's rights or an individual's pay, but it's been a struggle that other people have shown, been part of in solidarity. So we've started mapping out what are the kind of solidarity actions that have happened around the world. And I'll tell you that I've, in doing this, I feel a little bit you know, patriotic, because a lot of them are actually Australian, if you look at solidarity strikes that have happened around the world. I'm just going to show you a few. We've actually looked at um, a whole range. So when solidarity strikes have happened, they've often led to systemic change. For example, this one in South Korea, a few women in a wig manufacturing um, bravely went on strike when people were going to prison for for doing that, but it ended up leading to the, the downfall of a military dictatorship. If we look at uh, in some strikes that have really challenged privatisation, this is quite a famous one in Bolivia, where the whole community went on strike to oppose water privatisation. Here in Australia, there's been a number where the The maritime workers have gone on strike in solidarity, not at all for their own interests, but one, for example, was to support Indonesia's independence at a time where the White Australia policy meant most people really didn't see themselves in solidarity with Indonesians, but they refused to load Dutch ships until um, they pulled out of Indonesia. And they did the same thing for the Vietnam War. They said that we will not load ships that are taking military equipment and other equipment to, to Vietnam to oppose, to, to participate in the Vietnam War. They also, not just that union, but a number of unions, went on strike. Perhaps some of you might have remember the fairly five, five women that went to prison for protesting against the Vietnam War, and then the union movement, went a number went on strike in order to get them out of prison. Of course, there were many strikes in relation to apartheid, and Ending Apartheid Australia also played a significant role in that. Um, the green Bands. I found out through this work that gr- the concept of green movement actually came from these green Bands. And more recently, the Polish women went on strike against new laws in relation to abortion. There's been a range of strikes that have been happening um, by women's movements, led by women's movements just in the last year. You've probably seen the the women's strikes that happened around 8th of March this year, and then also in relation to the election of Trump and so forth. So these have really shown us that this is the answer to the current situation. So I just, in closing, wanted to come back to the question that I had for you earlier. If patriarchy is is, uh, the system that uses fear and threats to create the kind of economic, global, political and social order, what is the opposite of patriarchy? And for us, it's solidarity. And that's why we're really very happy as a feminist movement to work in in solidarity with the union movement and to see these struggles tied up together. And I hope over the next few days, you can think about how solidarity action from nurses here in order to bring about a change for yourselves, will also be tied up with global changes. Thank you.